Statistically speaking, we live in the safest period of human history. And no matter when you're listening to this episode, that statement will most likely remain true. However, no matter how many uplifting statistics we see, the world still seems to be a dark and scary place. And for that, you can mostly thank the news media. Fear sells. We listen more closely when we think we are reacting to a legitimate threat. Entering the 20th century, print media began resembling more of what it looks like today. Yellow journalism ran rampant, and tabloids and sensationalism began to dominate the American media landscape. This is the story of Bobby Dunbar, whose disappearance and prompted nationwide search enthralled Americans and kept their eyes glued to their newspapers for months. However, what follows his disappearance only gets stranger and stranger the deeper you look. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium, episode 14, Lost and Found, The Prestige. Robert Dunbar was born to Lessie and Percy Dunbar in Opelousas, Louisiana, in 1908. Four years later, in 1912, the family decided to take a trip to Swayze Lake nearby. Now, calling it a lake would be generous. A swamp would probably be a more accurate term. The family was relaxing and fishing when they looked around and could not find their four-year-old son, Bobby. Any parent is familiar with this initial heart drop and the panic that follows. Lessie called out to her husband who was fishing on the bank, asking if he knew where Bobby was. He thought the boy was with her. Both parents dropped what they were doing and ran in different directions, calling out Bobby's name. They searched and searched through the surrounding woods, asking other vacationers if they had seen the boy. They all shook their heads, but some joined in the search. Eventually, someone rode their horse into town to alert the authorities. Within 24 hours, hundreds of county residents were searching for little Bobby Dunbar. They had only one piece of evidence, a small shoe print in the mud near train tracks on a bridge over the murky lake. It was at this moment that some people noted that Swayze Lake is known for its staggering number of alligators and began connecting the grim dots. However, the Dunbars refused to give up hope and went to several local newspapers with details about Bobby and where he was last seen. Within the week, a statewide search had begun. Missing posters went up throughout Louisiana. Maybe men in the newspaper business really wanted to find this boy. Or maybe it was just a slow news day. But papers all throughout the southern United States began reporting on the missing Bobby Dunbar. It was a media sensation. Even national newspapers began reporting on the search. Men in diners discussed what they thought happened to the boy. Cynical citizens labeled the boy as dead, while more idealistic ones thought he was still out there. It seemed as if everyone in America waited with bated breath to see if they could find their missing boy. In the spring of 1913, authorities found traveling piano repairman William Walters traveling in Mississippi with a boy who matched the exact age and description of Bobby Dunbar. Walters was arrested and charged with kidnapping. However, he claimed that the boy's name was Bruce Anderson and that his mother had given him temporary custody. He said that when the boy was traveling with him, people were much more likely to open up their homes for them to spend the night. The Dunbars were notified and they came as quickly as they could to see the boy. Newspaper articles vary wildly over the nature of this reunion. Some say that Leslie Dunbar was initially unsure whether the boy was Bobby, and the boy did nothing but cry, 
while others claim that Bobby was excited to see his family and called out to his siblings by name. Regardless, after a few days, the Dunbars were cleared to take Bobby home. Shortly thereafter, Julia Anderson arrived and backed up William Walter's story and said she was the mother of Bruce Anderson. She worked for William's father, and she confirmed that she agreed to let her son travel with William, but only for a few days. She was given photos of five different boys and asked to identify which one was her son. She picked the picture of the boy that the Dunbars had taken home, but not with confidence. Because of this, and the fact that she had three other children out of wedlock, something that was incredibly frowned upon at the time, Julia Anderson was largely disregarded and her claims dismissed. Bobby Dunbar returned to Opelousas, Louisiana, and made national news once again. The lost boy was finally found. When the Dunbars returned to their hometown with Bobby in tow, they were paraded through downtown in a fire truck, with just under a thousand people lined up, waving and cheering for the found boy. Bobby was finally home safe. All of America seemed to let out a sigh of relief. Back in Mississippi, William Walter served two years in prison for kidnapping. Heartbroken, Julia Anderson returned home, labeling the Dunbars as kidnappers and maintaining that the boy was, in fact, her son, Bruce Anderson. Meanwhile, Bobby Dunbar lived a happy life. He attended school, had his heart broken, played sports, threw his cap at graduation, got a job, met his wife, bought a house, had children, paid bills, and went on vacations of his own. I guess you could call it the American dream. Bobby Dunbar died, on all counts, a happy man in 1966. But the story doesn't end there. In the early 2000s, Bobby Dunbar's granddaughter, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, was dealing with the aftermath of an unexpected death of her brother. In an effort to relieve her grief, her father presented her with an old briefcase filled with hundreds of newspaper clippings of her grandfather's disappearance. It was a tale all of the grandchildren knew well. Their grandfather was taken in 1912, but that was found with his kidnapper in Mississippi after an eight-month search. However, after digging through the newspaper clippings and doing hundreds of hours of research on her own, poring over birth certificates and census data, Margaret began to question the nature of her grandfather's disappearance. In 2004, she convinced her father, Bob Dunbar Jr., to undergo a DNA test to compare with his cousin. Most of the Dunbar family was against this. They had everything to lose. But he agreed to take the test to prove that all of Margaret's research added up to nothing but hogwash. After the test, which is 100% conclusive, there was no biological match between Bobby Dunbar's son and his cousin. Bobby Dunbar was, in fact, Bruce Anderson. We'll never know what actually happened to the real Bobby Dunbar back in 1912. The most likely scenario was that he drowned in Swayze Lake, and then was eaten by alligators, leaving no evidence behind. But if we can mourn the death of the real Bobby Dunbar, then we can also mourn the death of the real Bruce Anderson, who, in a way, also died all those years ago. In classic illusory magic, there are three parts, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. 
In the first part, the pledge, you are shown an object, maybe a flower, a deck of cards, a dove. Then in the second part, the turn, the object is taken away, put behind a curtain or into a hat, and then made disappear. And in the third part, the object is brought back, called the prestige. However, the real trick is that the original object is gone. The flower folded up, the dove's neck snapped and pulled up in a sleeve, but another object is put in the original's place, just close enough to the original that the entire audience can be fooled. Historium is produced by me, Jake Barton. Historium is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud, and also iTunes. So any likes, follows, subscribes, or reviews always help the show. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>